Do you remember where you were when COVID-19 became a crisis in your community? Your plans put on hold? Your expectations upended? How have you adjusted to life in a pandemic? On this episode of Outspoken, I will talk with our guest, Natalie Fusekis, about how to do oral history amid the greatest public health crisis in 100 years. Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History, highlights people and ideas in the fields of oral and public history, along with current events of community interest. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra, Professor of History and Associate Director of the Center. We're living through a pandemic. The COVID-19 crisis that has upended lives, killed thousands, and made daily life uncertain and strange. CSU Fullerton went virtual in the middle of spring semester and plans to continue that way at least through spring 2021. Classes had to be rethought, students had to adjust and carry on, even as the economy collapsed around them. COVID put many dreams and projects on hold and threatened the viability of others. It sent a shudder through the community of oral historians whose best practices advocate face-to-face interviewing, an impossibility for as long as the virus raged unchecked. How would the DeGroff Center function during this uncertain time? I spoke with Natalie Fusekas, director of the center and a political historian, just before the election. She described the challenges and new opportunities presented by COVID. We began by discussing what might have been a full-throated commemoration of the centennial of women's suffrage that, due to COVID, never quite came off. So this is Outspoken. We're recording this October 29, just a few days before the 2020 election. And I'm here with Dr. Natalie Fusekis, who is director of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History and a frequent guest on Outspoken. Natalie, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here in our virtual realm. Yes, usually we do this in person but like almost everything else in our lives for the past several months, we don't do this in person now. Uh, We're doing this via Zoom and um, the nice thing about it is it works just fine for a podcast. So we're doing our, we're continuing the Outspoken podcast with Natalie. And today we're gonna talk about yes, election, but also the way that coronavirus has affected her oral history efforts. Normally oral histories are done in person and that's not as possible as it used to be a few months ago. So we'll get to all of that. First, uh, Natalie, how are you holding up with the election just a few days away? It seems like there's a lot of tension around the country right now. How are you dealing? I am dealing as well as um, can be expected as somebody who studies politics, it's hard not to, as one of my friends said, stick my head in the sand. Um, I am not one of those people. So I'm reading, I'm voting, voted. um, And I did my part to try to encourage other people to vote. And beyond that, I'm just waiting to see what happens just like everybody else. And it's a really significant election year, I think, Unfortunately, events have overshadowed it a little bit. That is that this is the centennial of the amendment to the constitution guaranteeing 
uh, women's right to vote. Uh, what are your thoughts on that this year? Do you feel like it's kind of been obscured by everything? Um, and what do you think the significance is in 2020, looking back on that really, really important event? Um, yes. Short answer is that, yes, I think on some level, the, the way we would have paid attention to uh, the 100th anniversary of, and I think as historians, we need to say white women getting the right to vote. Um, I, I still think it's a milestone that's worth marking and um, celebrating. And as historians, I think we would have spent, um, and myself personally, spent a lot more time talking about this. Um, we did at Cal State Fulton host a couple panels, but I think most of the efforts that um, I think other people outside of those who are interested in women's history and political history, I think they didn't pay attention to the centennial in the way they might have. Uh, and it's certainly uh, the coronavirus and our forced stay at home has kept me and my colleague, Dr. Margie Brown Cornell from the activities that we had planned uh, for this fall, which was the launching of an exhibition that we hope to travel across the state that explored, that was based on a series of oral histories that my students and myself have done over the last seven years. I started thinking about this anniversary seven years ago. Um, we were supposed to open a, a on, on or around the actual anniversary an exhibit at the Fullerton Arboretum that would have celebrated the contributions of a multiracial group of women in California and um, grassroots activists on the political process. And instead, uh, we are not doing that. Yeah, I had thought before all the craziness uh, hit that this would be sort of a galvanizing event or, or anniversary for voter registration and for all kinds of topics related to uh, women and politics. And it just seemed like uh, that part of the conversation didn't, didn't really happen. And maybe, maybe there were in, in fact more important uh, motivators <laughs> that came into play like the coronavirus, like Black Lives Matter. Um, but I don't know, what were, your, what were your hopes, if any, for, for what the, the anniversary could have meant? Well, I think what we were hoping is that um, people at this exhibit, while they would see images of women um, participating in the political process, they would also be able to hear these women talk about um, how they've engaged in the political process. And we were you know, deliberately not going all the way back to suffrage, but really thinking about that anniversary in terms of what do women do now? What have women done in the last 60, 70 years, um, you know, since World War II really in the region to affect political change? And how have they done that? And how have they uh, made sure other women are participating, including, you know, women who engaged in Black Lives Matter, uh, Latina women in Orange County who provide an interesting twist on the Black Lives Matter movement who have had their sons, um, family members killed by uh, police. So we would have you know, still engaged in some of the issues that we're all talking about today, 
but I think we really would have used it as a springboard towards the 2020 election to think about, you know, what are the various ways that women have really made an impact in the region since becoming quote unquote official citizens for white women a hundred years ago and for women of color in reality in the 1960s. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I'm thinking too about, you know, all of these plans that, that have been in place for this project, but for many people's projects. And suddenly, I guess in March, things really took a turn and uh, everybody had to suddenly rethink what they were doing, teachers, how they're gonna teach and whether projects could move forward. I don't know, for, for a lot of the country, it was probably the day the NBA called things off, right? And that, that, that seemed really serious at that point. At what point did you sort of come to terms with the idea that this project you'd been thinking about and working on for so long was perhaps not going to turn out quite the way you had planned? Yes, I think initially, so one other thing is that um, a student and a recent graduate of mine had, and I were working on sort of a Santa Barbara version of this project that I'd been doing and I had, we had gotten the money in December and we're launching in January and, you know, really we're about to go out and start doing interviews in March when we all ended up, you know, the NBA and then it was sort of a domino effect of stay at home order, no, no, no teaching in person at Cal State Fullerton. And so oral history in person became something that had to be put on hold. Initially, I think I just like everyone else thought maybe it was going to be on hold for a month you know, six weeks, you know, even then I started saying maybe end of the semester um, that we'd be able to start doing interviews in the summer and that, that didn't happen. And the same thing with the exhibition, you know, initially I think we were just continuing on with the work and then somewhere in about May or June, we realized that even if a miracle happened and everything was open in September that given the way our lives were going, we weren't sure we were going to be able to pull this off. And even if things were open, having an event um, with narrators, many of whom are in their seventies and eighties uh, with, you know, what we had hoped to be, you know, a couple hundred people was just not going to happen. And given that you don't want to put all that effort in and then not be able to gather together the people that would really, um, you know, we had a plans for engaging school classrooms in this exhibit. So we really began to realize that that wasn't going to happen. And at least for now, that the sort of temporary solution is that we were postponing until fall of 2021. And I'm not even sure that that's going to be a possibility. Yeah, it's, it's, it's disappointing, especially with all the investment and all the work. But you do have a certain, uh, a few interviews I think you've, you completed, right? Yeah, we did not. So we just took a complete pause, which is what most of the oral history community was doing. Mm -hmm. And while I took the complete pause, I really had to figure out, well, what is it that we can do? Um, I became part of a group of uh, the, the Oral History Association, which I've been involved with for many years now. Um, created a task force for uh, remote interviewing. And I put myself on that task force, not because I was an expert. Um, in fact, you know, 
best practices said you don't do interviewing remote. But because I wanted to help myself and help the center figure out what was the best path forward. But the initial response of me and many, many others was just to put everything on pause because the funding that I had gotten was for in-person high definition video interviews. And even with Zoom, you can do a video interview, but it is not gonna be high definition quality video. And it's a very different experience. Um, and, you know, I love oral history because you are sitting with somebody in their home, uh, at their place of work, face-to-face -face, um, in a very sort of intimate setting. And for me personally, I just was having a hard time wrapping my head around how do we move forward? And so this fall, we finally started, or actually in August, we started doing remote interviews. Let's, let's backtrack first. It may seem obvious to a lot of people why a best practice would be in-person interviews, but could you walk us through what it is about doing a first-person interview that makes it the favored, um, not just a personal preference, but, but actually a professional best practices? What is it about that that, that gives it that cachet? Well, I think that, you know, in normal life before coronavirus, the way that you build rapport with somebody and, you know, relate to them was on a person to person basis. So it's not just about the visuals of the video because a good portion of the interviews we do aren't even video recorded because that we don't have the funding for that. But it is that sitting with somebody with a recording device and them you know, talking to you, you looking them in the eye, nodding, smiling, encouraging. There is something that happens when they are talking and you are listening in a very intent way that allows them the space to tell their story and to feel safe to tell their story. And so, and it's what I love, you know, I, I you know, as a historian, I, you have to enjoy going to an archive and, and uh, looking at documents. And I certainly do enjoy that. But I think oral history became my passion because um, at my core, I get energy from other people. And there's a certain amount of power that comes from having somebody tell their story to you, you know, in a very detailed, uh, well-developed, intimate fashion that is at least I was thinking would be very difficult to replicate in a virtual environment. Can you think of through the years times when it looked like the interview was gonna be pretty difficult because there wasn't a, a sense of rapport at the beginning that you had to kind of stick with and or fight through and your active listening played a role in making the interview turn out? Yeah, I think that, um, two things. One, sometimes a few times when I was interviewing people who were maybe from a different perspective from me, and they made an assumption about what I was going to think about what they were saying. And I'm just thinking about the interview that I did with a former woman Marine who, you know, was from a military family, was a Republican, all these things she told me as we were setting up the equipment and assumed because I grew up in Berkeley that I 
you know, was either a socialist or a communist or something along those lines. And I wonder what would happen if we had not been sitting in her den talking face to face. Um, I, I, I think that I might've still been able to navigate it. And then the other is this, there have been narrators who are a little more reticent to share their story. They don't like to be in the spotlight. They're not used to being focused on. And for those, and with those people, you have to sort of spend the early part of the interview drawing them out. And I think part of that is made easier by the fact that you are right there in their living room, listening to them, looking at them, encouraging them, making them feel safe um, and willing to share. And I think my initial sort of feeling about Zoom was that it wasn't going to be able to, or any other kind of remote interviewing that it wasn't going to be able to uh, replicate that process. It's going to take one of your tools away. Yeah. And one that that could help diffuse a tense situation or make people feel more comfortable in the face of technology they don't quite trust or process they don't quite trust. Um, yeah. And I think too, the, the few remote interviews that I had done in the past were on the telephone, right? They were not in the era where there is some kind of, the technology was not such. And when you're on the telephone, it's even worse than where we are now. When you can't see somebody, um, like you can't see me now because I'm afraid my video feed is gonna mess up the audio. Um, yeah, I'm doing active listening. I'm nodding and, and, and smiling, right. looking at great, you and you're not, I'm great. getting nothing back. I know, I'm sorry. Back. My photo doesn't do anything. Um, but that I was really worried that that's exactly it. You don't get the nonverbal cues, right? So you don't know if somebody's being silent on the other end of the line because they are thinking and are going to say more. So you don't know when to jump in or what to leave that silence so that they may have the space to keep talking. Um, and so on a phone, that, that to me makes the phone interview really challenging. And that was my only experience before. So, you know, that's what I was really thinking about as we were considering and looking at how we might do uh, remote oral history interviews. So you are, I mean, the profession of oral history is in a little bit of a, of a crisis at that moment. How do, how do we proceed in terms of, of continuing research, continuing projects, continuing interviews? How did you and or the professions sort of evolve into an acceptance of this situation we're in now where you are using Zoom? How did you get there? Well, um, two things, one, those who had done some remote interviewing, there were a few people who had already sort of tested video interviewing and had done some remote interviews. So they, they jumped in and offered to, you know, hold a webinar so that those of us in the oral history field could figure out what it was going to take to do this kind of work. So then I joined this task force where we spent most of the summer coming up with basically the best practices for remote oral history interviewing. Uh, and those best practices take into account what's the most complicated thing about doing this is it's not just what are you comfortable with, but the people you are interviewing, are they going to have 
the technology that is needed to do a remote interview via computer? If not, then what, what's your next option? And so you came up with what is now, and if anyone who's listening to this is interested, there's great materials on the Oral History Association's website, but we came up with a decision tree that helped you figure out what was the best possible way for you to do this. In an ideal world, the best remote interview uses some kind of video. Doesn't have to be that the video is recorded, but that it allows you to see the person that you're um, interviewing and them to see you. And, but then all the other things, how do you do um, release forms remotely, right? We always, for legal purposes, have required a wet signature on those kind of documents, you know? So we, as a center had to develop multiple ways for people to sign the release forms. And then we tested all the different platforms that are out there, um, you know, because it's fine if I can do all of this, but the person on the other end of the line has to be able to, you know, get on a computer, has to have a webcam, has to, for the Santa Barbara project, we decided to follow the guidelines um, that the Obama Oral History Project was following, except that the Obama Oral History Project has more money than we do. So they were dropping off a Yeti mic at every narrator's house and leaving it there for them to keep. What we ended up coming up with is we purchased a few and some webcams and we hired somebody to drop the equipment off at narrator's houses in Santa Barbara and then pick them up and sterilize them and then do it again. What's a Yeti um, mic? A Yeti mic is the um, mics like we use for the podcast. Um, the very high end uh, meant for uh, good quality audio because most of us on our computer, when we're just recorded through the mic on the computer, it's not the greatest of quality. But you know, all of these things have glitches, right? There's you know everything, you could have ever, all the best laid plans. And so we had to develop an entire process of how you test this ahead of time with the person the day before so that you don't stress both you and the narrator out on the day of the interview when stuff is not working. And I could go into a billion other things that we have come up with. But I think it's really interesting uh, having to adapt so that you can continue. What are, what are a couple of other new changes that the association endorses that are, are uh, a substantial shift from, from before? Well, I think that the association now endorses the best equipment to use is the one that works. In other <laughs> words, right? Um, whatever will allow you to record the story is the best possible way that you can record the story right now. So that um, if you can't have a video, then okay, you're still gonna do the interview anyway, because um, I mean, we had one of the narrators on our list in Santa Barbara, she died in April, not from COVID, but we hadn't figured out what we were doing yet. And in the process she passed away and, you know, that's a, that's a common thing that happens when you're an oral historian, unfortunately, but I hate that the pandemic, you know, may have contributed to us not being able to get um, her story. I think the other thing that we have realized is that I haven't actually done an interview, but uh, 
both uh, Brenda St. Hilaire and Katie Hortzman, who are working on this project with me, they have reported and other oral historians have reported the same, that they've been pleasantly surprised by the level and the quality of the stories that you can get via Zoom or some kind of other video platform. So people have been piecing together and this is not an endorsement for Zoom. There are all kinds of ways to do this. But what we found is that you still can create a connection with the person um, when you can see them uh, through your computer that has allowed you know, people to record still three hour interviews. I do think that's the other thing that we have figured out is that you have to be open to shorter interviews because we all know who've lived in the world of remote everything that there is fatigue that comes from staring through your computer, you know. It was my next question. Yeah, oh, perfect. Yeah, so I think that, and boy, I, I, it's so ironic that while you and I are trying to do this, that I was on a meeting earlier today and everything worked fine. And right now my video feed is like freezing and really wonky. So I can't, you're, you're having to do this without any feedback, but you know, we, have realized that the Zoom fatigue is something, especially with the population of octogenarians that uh, we're interviewing, that you need to take into account. There are plenty of people who just have soldiered through and done three hour interviews and it's been totally fine, but it is clear that everyone between an hour and an hour and a half begins to lose their focus. And so I now am instructing people to lead with that idea that this might take two sessions. We, we don't usually lead with that. Um, on different days. Yeah, on different days, at, you know, with, so that everyone can rest between and we can get the best story possible. Yeah, it's fascinating. And there's always that pressure in oral history, that urgency, because so many of the narrators are older and um, often are, are frail and... If you don't get to them, you don't get to them, and you're, that's, those stories go with them. Well, there are other ways of adapting, right? And one of those is to think about subject matter. What, is, what, is urge, what stories need to be told right now? What stories can we gather now? How did you move into a new uh, project or a couple of projects that were really of this moment? Well, so I was inspired because around the country and initially and certainly some institutions. So Columbia University has really, you know, pioneered, they didn't set out to do this, but out of necessity is what we call now trauma oral history. And the reason is that after September 11th, 2001, uh, Columbia, you know, jumped in and started recording stories of first responders, folks who lived in New York City during it, very diverse ethnic uh, racial populations so that they could get the everyday view of what had happened um, in 9-11. And they did that immediately after. And then with a certain number, they did it a, a, a year later. And they figured out sort of some of the things that people have to grapple with when they're doing oral histories in the you know, immediate aftermath of a disaster. So then you know, Hurricane Katrina became the next 
place where people, oral historians stepped in and, and really started recording daily life stories. Um, and so when the coronavirus hit, um, Columbia University in, in their you know, perfect form just immediately pivoted and got some emergency funding to start interviewing via Zoom people who lived in New York, uh, which uh, you know was in many ways our ground zero for coronavirus in the United States. Um, and so they started doing these oral histories immediately uh, over Zoom. And then as we were all talking about remote interviewing projects like this began to pop around. And it's not just oral historians. As a public historian, I'm sure you're aware there's just been uh, you know, massive amounts of documenting projects um, all over the world for people to uh, make sure that they save things related to COVID, that they encourage people to write diaries, that um, photographs, other materials, all are actively being preserved while we're living through this. And so I decided, you know, my plan had been to keep going with the women's project. I decided sometime in the early summer that it made most sense to me and also because I thought that my students are living through this and processing this, that this would be something that was really relevant to them. I decided to uh, have my class focus on COVID-19, daily life during COVID-19. And then at the end of May, when the protests started happening, I added Black Lives Matter because in many ways, for all of us, you can't really separate the two experiences. They were both happening simultaneously and, you know, right in, we were living through them. And so uh, my class this semester, which has about 18 or 19 students are recording stories of, um, and very diverse stories of people who, about their experiences of living through the coronavirus. Yeah, and that has to be something that uh, your students respond to. It's it's something they're living through right now, right? I mean, how, what, was the, what was the response when your students learned that, that this was the topic, these were the topics? I, you know, I mean, I think that, so we began the class having them share their experiences. Um, I did a discussion post board where the in the second class they were asked to share their own experience and then you know sort of how they've you know how they survived or what they did to cope and um and then they responded to each other and people really um just like in an oral history interview they really shared pretty openly what they had lived through and then at the beginning of every, every class i mean the upside of zoom is you know i've been doing these zoom polls at the beginning of every class and I started doing them the first one was really about COVID and you know how many people live with somebody who is in a vulnerable population and of my class of 20 students 75 percent of them live with somebody who is vulnerable and so you know uh, we talked a lot about all of that and then for them, you know, I let them pick. I did not give them anything except that it had to be, you know, COVID or Black Lives Matter related. And, you know, I have students interviewing their parents. I have students who are interviewing 
friends who are nurses. I have students, I have a student interviewed a photographer who went up to the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests in Los Angeles and documented uh, them night after night for four or five nights. Um, I had another student who was at the protest but decided to interview his cousin who was married to an LAPD police officer to get an alternate perspective on what was happening. That's so great. it's been really, and they, they shared their, some clips from those interviews two nights ago. And it was, uh, it was as it's always wonderful, but it was incredible to sort of hear the diversity of, of stories that they recorded. A woman who's a theater person, you know, interviewed somebody who was part of a Los Angeles theater scene and what has happened to her life. Yeah, it definitely changed. You're right. In public history, you know, around the world, there are projects. I, my class, I was going to do something in my intro to public history class this fall, and I completely set it aside once the protest started. And so now we're doing a mapping Confederate monuments project. Um, students are really, really interested in the history of these symbols and how they came to be and what their fate is now that the country is very um, uh, concerned about what they represent. So uh, we've all kind of had to be adaptable. That's really, that's really cool though. Um, what's, the, what's the end result gonna be of the project? I, I assume that these are going to be interviews that become part of the center's collection. Are there any possibilities beyond that that you can see? Well, I mean, I'm. I'm definitely gonna, after listening to these interviews, it's, I mean, I was already thinking this, but convinced me that I need to go see if I can find some funding to, to do this project on a, a larger scale, because um, I think this is a, you know, this is a hundred year moment or whatever you wanna say, this is, a, this is a transformative moment in American history. And our region, you know, has a lot to, to say about all of this and, um, what I didn't say is that, you know, even where we are, our very local community, I have a student who's interviewing our department chair about what it was like being a department chair. And she's also interviewing the head of the library about what it was like to be the head of the library. So there's a lot more stories that, you know, need to be recorded. Beyond that, um, I certainly think that, you know, you and Dr. Brown Cornell and I could talk about some kind of exhibition project once we're able to do physical exhibits and then potentially, you know, I think this would be great um, on, a, on, a, on a website so that they would be accessible to, to everyone. So all of those things are there in my mind, although I'm very much, if I'm being honest, you know, doing anything beyond sort of the basics, living through this myself, I, you know, I, I don't know how these people are like writing grant proposals while living, doing their work life and then, you know, being cooped up um, with your family all at the same time. Uh, with, with no end date in sight yet. Right. Um, so I am thinking big, but maybe not as big as I might normally think, you know, I like to think big. So, and I'll get there, but I feel like I need to have more space in my brain and maybe I need to just get past the election so that maybe you know, I won't be worrying about that as one of my worries. <laughs> I don't know when that will be, though. It may not be next year. Yeah, who knows Tuesday. when when that worry would end. Um, um, but I think that 
there are places, you know, I think all of these collecting um, sites are something that public historians in particular are paying attention to. There's a wonderful website that has a map of all of these projects. Um, and so to make sure that ours is part of the map and um, that we do document this period, you know, and not just, I mean, yes, I think it would be great if we were able to interview the Orange County public health official who had to quit because of, you know, her insistence on a mask ordinance, uh, but also just the people like you and me who are living their daily lives completely differently than they were seven months ago. Yeah, and still trying to be good teachers, not knowing whether we really are anymore. <laughs> right, good parents, good, you know, sons and daughters, whatever, all the different things that you need to be doing. Well, uh, absolutely, though, there's great potential here. Uh, obviously, we're still in the middle of this pandemic. We're not at the end of it. The stories are going to still be there for the gathering for quite some time. So whatever ultimate form or forms this project ends up taking, there'll be time to think about it, I think, in, in advance. Um, I agree 100%. Speaking, speaking of thinking big, you, you are a big thinker. And as a result of your big thinking and your fundraising and your vision, the Center for Oral and Public History has undergone a pretty big change. What can you tell the public about the current state of the Groff Center and what their access to it is or is not and what, what they have to look forward to? Well, one of the exciting things um, that has happened is that the construction um, of the new Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History, which uh, more than doubles the size of the center, provides multiple spaces for researchers and students and the public, um, has moved forward and the construction is basically complete now, just uh, there's gonna be delayed use. Uh, we hope to physically move before Thanksgiving up to our new beautiful space on the sixth floor of Pollock Library South. But the parts that make me most excited were the public parts of this. I mean, yes, I'm excited that our archive will actually have its own distinct HVAC system and our collections will now be preserved the way that they're supposed to be. But the collaborative workroom for our oral and public history students, the reading room for researchers who want to come engage with our collections and the uh, conference room slash community room in which we can host uh, small lectures plus bring in classes of students who are working on oral and public history projects. All of that is going to be delayed at least until next summer uh, because the university is, is sticking remote until at least after the semester um, ends in spring 2021. It's just going to be a fantastic space for researchers, community members who want access to our materials. It's going to be fantastic. What are the uh, what's the situation of the website? How can people access materials that way? So, because we do all of these these research projects that are ongoing, oral history projects that we're now moving forward with in a remote environment. I have my staff is there's somebody in the office every day. Um, we got approval that we don't, nobody works in the same room. So 
there's at least one and sometimes two staff members there. So people can email us. Uh, we have some of our finding aids on uh, our website. And for those collections we don't, you can email us and we will send you the finding aid. And unlike the spring where we weren't being, you know, we were having to basically postpone getting anybody materials, we're now actively uh, getting oral history interviews, transcripts uh, to people um, at, when they request them. There's a few things that we can't, if you're interested in our, one of our few document collections, uh, those uh, are not digitized. And so you would have to wait until we open up. But anything that's an oral history, uh, we can digitize it within a couple of days and, and at least get somebody the MP3 file. So the center is functional despite it all. Yes. And we're still fulfilling the mission the best we can. And uh, we have a lot to look forward to once, once this pandemic winds down. We assume that it will. Um, I want to thank you, Dr. Natalie Fusakis, Director of the Center for Oral and Public History, for all of your efforts through the years and also for joining me today on Outspoken here at the end of October 2020. Thank you, Dr. Kothra. All right, and that's Outspoken for this time. For producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothrop.